Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23 again. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 23, or you can turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, This week, we're continuing our look at understanding what it means for us to be saved. How do we become saved? How do we accept Jesus as as our Lord and Savior? To, To look at Jesus on the cross and this incredible moment that he has to, for us to see what it means for us to receive salvation from him. And we've been looking at this interaction that Jesus had with, with those who are being crucified with him, to see the interaction that leads one of these men to find salvation. In this incredibly painful and difficult moment, we see that Jesus' heart for the lost is never changed. Um, as Jesus hangs dying for the sins of mankind, there's still one more for him. And so as he hangs on the cross and others hang with him, his heart is still to save the lost. And we found the interaction that we're looking at. It takes place in Luke chapter 23, and it starts at verse 32. And then, so we'll read a couple verses just to to remind us of what we've been looking at, where it says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Verse 33 will say, when they came to the place called the skull, They crucified him there, along with the other criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, I want to stop for just a brief moment here, because I want to talk about for a second what it means that these these men were being crucified. That means, what it means for us and what we need to understand is that these were two of the most unrighteous, some of the most deplorable, detestable people in all of Jerusalem on that day. Now, this is a place that as we look at these two guys, we need to understand something because tradition and and sort of the way that we translate things out and the way that we have in the past translated things out, um, we, we may have an understanding of what these guys were guilty of. Perhaps if you grew up in church, you would hear about Jesus being crucified with two thieves. These men were not thieves. Um, that, that, that that's a, a translational issue, but these were men were, were much worse than thieves. Crucifixion was not a common punishment. It wasn't the go-to. In fact, for the, the, the vast, 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 vast majority of criminals in Jesus' time, never even, the crucifixion never even entered into the conversation about how to punish them. They, they were the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was an event. It was something that they would do. It took time, it took effort, it took energy, and that's not what the Romans were wanting to do with their criminals. If you were a criminal, you were thrown into prison. You were stoned, you were killed. Like there, there was lots of ways for them to punish you that never approached crucifixion. And so when we understand that these men are being crucified with Jesus, it was a statement. 
It was a message. It was Rome making an example of people, and it was used to, to demonstrate against people whom Rome thought needed to be shown something. That if you were going to be crucified, it was because Rome wanted to make an example out of you. So people who knew who you were and people who knew what you had done would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not do that again. Look at what they did to them. And so in, in crucifixion, Rome was saying that you're not just guilty, but you're, you're worthy of suffering this agonizing long death. And then after you were crucified, and, and this, this shed some light on, you know, there's the story of, of after Jesus has died, and they take his body and they put him in, in a tomb. Traditionally, when you were crucified, your body was thrown into the dump. That, that the ending of crucifixion wasn't your death on the cross. The ending of crucifixion was you died on the cross, but then they would take your body and they'd throw it into the city dump where it would just be burned up to, to be gone. And so, in the end, it wasn't just crucifixion, but it's that you were told, the, Rome told the world, you're trash. You're nothing. You're, it was making a point. And that's what these two guys had earned. That they hadn't just stolen some things. They weren't just, just oh, well, they were some thieves and they got caught and they were stealing some bread for their family. They, that these were the worst of the worst people that needed to be a spectacle made of. And so when we understand that, it helps us to understand, or at least maybe not understand because of what takes place, the interaction that Jesus shares with at least one of these men. And specifically, the statements that we've been looking at start in verse 39 as we see Jesus convert, we see the thieves converse where the, the men, the criminals, converse with each other and Jesus converse with them. In verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there, he, he, is, he is suffering, he is dying, and he lashes out and he lashes out at Jesus. He's heard of this Jesus and, and he lashes out at him saying, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But then the other, the other man enters into the conversation in verse 40. It says, but the other criminal rebuked him saying, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence. And then these next three or the next couple verses, we see these three statements that this man makes that we've been walking through over the last few weeks as we look to understand what it is to be saved and how we're saved. And so the first thing that the man says is, we are, or we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. We talked about the first time as we looked at this, our need to admit, admit that we're sinners, admit that we're guilty. And this man begins by saying, I am guilty, you are guilty, we are guilty. What is happening to us right now, it's not an overreaction. What's happening to us right now, it's not undeserved. What's happening to us right now, we are guilty of. And we talked for each one of us that this is how the pro process of salvation begins in our lives. Is for us to be open to admitting, hey, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I, I need God's grace. I need something because the sum total of my life falls short of perfection. And if it's fallen short of perfection, I need intervention in my life in order to save us. And so this man begins by, by saying, look, we, we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are being punished justly for what we deserve. 
the next, the, this man says, but this man has done nothing wrong. Last week we talked about this statement showing the man's belief in Jesus, that he didn't say, but I heard this man has done nothing wrong. He didn't say somehow, well, rumor has it that this guy's been pretty good. Rumor has it that he's, he, he's just being punished for something he didn't do. But he says, this man has done nothing wrong. He was the perfect, sinless son of God. And that for us, the second step in salvation is to believe that the answer to the question posed when we admit that we're sinners is to see and believe that Jesus is the answer to that question. But not just to believe in an academic sense, not just to believe that, that well, yes, Jesus was this, Jesus was that, but to believe it in the sense that it forces the way that we live the way that we see, the way that we interpret the world around us to change. That if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that it then allows for our lives and the path that our lives are taking and the way that we're living to be different. And then the last statement the man makes, and this is what we're going to spend our time on this morning. In verse 40, oh, I believe, in verse 42 he says, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this leads us to the last step in the ABCs of salvation. The last step is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and as our personal Savior. We, we see in this, this man's conversation with Jesus, we see these steps walked out where we see that he's a sinner in need of a Savior and that he sees Jesus as the sinless Savior who can be the answer to the question of his sin. And that leads him to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, Lord of heaven and Lord of his life. But look at, look at the statement of the criminal again. It says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when, when he comes into where? His, his kingdom. Who's? Whose kingdom? His kingdom, that's right. He, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, remember me when you get to heaven and put in a good word for me, okay? He doesn't say, Jesus, when, when you die and you get to heaven, see if there's a rope you can toss down to me, my friend. He doesn't, he, he, he recognizes Jesus' authority and when you get into your kingdom, when you as the king of heaven, that's what it means when it's your kingdom. If, if I am, if, if I am the, the king of England, my kingdom is England. If you say that's your kingdom, I am the king of that place. It's not my kingdom if I'm not. And so when the man says, well, remember me when you go to your kingdom, remember me, king of heaven, when you return to heaven. And this is the last, this is the confession that we need to make as Christians, that we need to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The statement Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is God. Jesus has, Jesus will say that all authority on heaven and earth are his. And it's placing Jesus as Lord over our lives. It's giving Jesus and ourselves or it's, sorry, it's giving our lives and ourselves over to Jesus to be his. It's, it's not just confessing the same way we talked about last week, that it's not just a belief in an academic sense. This isn't a confession of something apart from us. But when we confess Jesus Christ is Lord, we are confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord 
over myself and I give myself over to him. In saying Jesus is Lord, we commit ourselves to, to living for him, to walking for him, to obeying his commandments. And it's, it's an, an acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship is, is accompanied by a submission to the authority of Jesus. That if I say Jesus is Lord of my life, I then place myself under the authority of Jesus. I don't place Jesus next to me. I don't place myself above Jesus and say, hey, the parts that I like were good and the parts that I don't, eh. I place Jesus, if Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over everything. Practically what that means is we hand our lives over to Jesus and we invite him to be Lord over every area of our lives. And this is where I'm going to invite you to, to turn to Mark chapter 10 with me this morning as we begin to, to examine, okay, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do I know if I'm doing that? How do I know if I'm not? This is a big concept. What does this, this look like? Well, in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, Jesus is approached by a man who has the same question that we've been walking through over the last couple of weeks. As, as we've been talking, about what does it mean to be saved? This man comes to Jesus with that same question, and he, he comes to pose it to Jesus. In verse 17, it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Good, good teachers, man runs up to Jesus and falls down in front of him and says, Jesus, what do I got to do to be saved? How can I know if I'm, if I'm saved? How can I find salvation? To put it like the criminal on the cross, how can I enter into your kingdom? Now, there's a little bit of stuff to unpack in verse, chapter, or in verse 18 that we're not going to have time to, to get to this morning. But Jesus answers the question like this. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Then he begins to unpack for this man what, what the law, what, what, what would this man need to do to be saved? Well, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus answers this question in a, in a really literal sense. The man says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep all of the commandments all the time in every way perfectly. If you want to know how you can be saved, this is what it means. You, you need to be perfect. You have to follow the letter of the law. And, and the man, I'm, I'm sure, perhaps lacking a little bit of self-awareness, perhaps with a little bit of self-justification in his life. In verse 20, he says, Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Says, oh, all I had to do was keep the law? done that. Now we know, and, and we would say, sure you have. I'll bet. But this is why the first step is so important. Why we have to come to a place where we can admit, unlike this guy, that we haven't done that. I have not kept the law perfectly since I was a boy. But this man, in his own way and in his own understanding, says, okay, I've done those things. So I'm good, right? 
in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. We're going to stop there just for a moment. Because even as this man makes a statement undoubtedly untrue about himself, and we could have seen a moment where Jesus, being God, says, all right, well then let's talk about June 14th. You know, begin un to unpack for them. He says, okay, if you think you've done this, let's talk about all the times you didn't listen to your parents. Let's talk about all the lies you have told over the... But Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. And I want to share with you this morning... Just as a note, for you today, wherever you're at in your life, wherever you're at in your story with Jesus, whatever is going on in your heart, whatever's going on in your world, you need to know this is how Jesus looks at you. That as this man comes to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and loves him. That's how Jesus looks at you. Andrea, when Jesus looks at you, he loves you. David, when, when Jesus looks at you, he loves you. Jesus, when, when Jesus looks at Carol, he loves her. See, if you sit kind of in this area today, you're getting mentioned in a sermon. But you need to know today, when Jesus looks at you, loves you. This man came in his self-righteousness. And as we're about to see in a moment, he wasn't quite as righteous as he thought he was. But even as he shows up in, in perhaps a place where his heart shouldn't be, Jesus looks at him, loves him. He looks at him and out of love, he cares for this man. But out of love, he says to him, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, there's a couple things we need to unpack here as we understand what's taking place here. First, when the man asked what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus gives him the law, gives him the Old Testament law. And the man says, I've kept that. And Jesus says, okay, there's, there's, one, there's one other thing that's going on. But the thing that Jesus says to the man has nothing to do with the Old Testament law. This, this is not a question of the law. There is not a commandment in the Old Testament that says, you cannot be wealthy. This, there's not a commandment in the Old Testament that this man is breaking. Jesus says, you need to keep the commandments. But then Jesus brings something outside of that and says, well, the problem in your life, it's not that you're breaking one of the commandments. There, there's no law being broken and being wealthy. There's no sin in being rich. There's no chapter and verse that we can point to in Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or any of the places in the Old Testament law that we go, aha, here's what this guy was doing. At least on the surface. 
This man's wealth simply in and of itself was not an obstacle to him finding eternal life. But that leads us to the second thing. Because the issue for this man was not in actions. The issue for, for this man was not found in what he did do or what he didn't do. It wasn't found in, in somehow how he lived the, his life in the things that he has done or the things that he hasn't done. The issue for this man was found inside of his heart. Being rich was not a sin. Being rich in and of itself is not an obstacle to getting into heaven. For this man, how he related to these things in his life was a problem. And Jesus, being able to see and understand this man's heart, knew that this man wasn't going to be able to make Jesus Lord of his life as long as his wealth was occupying that space. That this man would be willing to raise Jesus all the way up to number two. But that's not what Jesus was looking for. And so out of love, remember, that's, that's how this, this, oh, these first couple of sentences started. Out of love for this man, Jesus looked at the man, he loved the man, and out of that love, he's got to push on some buttons that hurt to push. He was going to, to challenge this man, not on what he was doing, but what was going on behind the scenes. To, to tell him, you've put your wealth in a place it cannot be. And if you really want to find the lordship of God in your life, if you really want to find eternal life, if you really want salvation to come, I've got to be number one. You need to make God, God even over your wealth. And the only way you're going to be able to do that, my son, is to remove wealth. And the weight of this falls heavy, heavy on the man. He says that this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So a couple things for us to take away from this when it comes to understanding what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. First, it means that if we're going to confess Jesus as Lord, it means that we have to confess that Jesus is Lord of everything. That, that it's e for, for Jesus, for God, it's either I'm Lord of everything or I'm not. And that's what we see for this man, is, is either I'm above your wealth, or you're not going to find eternal life. Either I'm above what's, what you've placed in the top most important thing, or I'm not, but you can't tell me I'm number two. We cannot proclaim Jesus as Lord and then say at the same time, but I'm going to hold on to this thing and make it a little more important than you. But over here, I'm still, I'm still going to hold on to this. And we see for the rich young ruler that it wasn't somehow he had, he had intrinsically broken a, a commandment. Now, we would understand that he, he's made his wealth into an idol. And so what has he done? He's committed the sin of adult, or, or idolatry 
but not in the sense that they may have understood it, that it wasn't an idol, it wasn't a ball, it, it wasn't a, a god of, of another foreign country, he wasn't worshiping someone else, but he was bowing his knee to something else. But we see for the rich young ruler that proclaiming Jesus as Lord of all, it's not simply an issue of sin. Although sin can take that place in our lives, that, that we can elevate sin to a place above Jesus in our life. But it doesn't have to be as simple as that. For the rich young ruler, he wasn't doing anything wrong. But he had something in his life that was standing between him and God. There was something that Jesus could identify in his life and say, there, there is a thing between you and I. And the only way we can have relationship is, is if that thing that's between us is if you're willing to, to put it to the side. And the same thing can happen in our own lives if we're not careful. That, that we can look at my own life and I can think, hey, I, I do pretty good at this whole not sinning thing. Or I do pretty good at putting Jesus first in a whole lot of ways in my life. I do a pretty good job of that. And maybe it's not even wrong, but it, it's in its wrong place. Maybe it's a position that we hold in our community. Maybe, maybe it's a status that we have. Maybe it's something that we believe we need, something we believe we're entitled to. Maybe it's part of our identity. But what we have to understand is that anything can find its way into that spot. And so the test for us today, the test for us, the test for you, the test for me today, that what if Jesus came to us and said the same thing that he said to the rich young ruler? Remember, he, out of love, says to the rich young ruler, one thing you lack. What if Jesus comes to us today? He says, one thing you lack. Give up your career. One thing you lack. Give up that dream. One thing you lack. Stop seeing yourself like that. One thing you lack, remove yourself from that life. One thing you lack, stop going to the gym. One thing you lack, stop playing video games. One thing you lack, stop finding validation in all of these things. One thing you lack, give up the thing that is the most important thing in your life. What if Jesus comes to me and asks me to do that? Do I walk away sad? What is, is there one thing that if Jesus asked you to step away from, would it cause you to stumble? Would it cause you to feel as though maybe that's, that's too far? I don't, I don't know that I can do that. That doesn't seem right. That, that doesn't seem fair. Why do I have to give this up? None of these other people do. See, the rich young ruler wasn't the only rich person in the world. It wasn't one of one that Jesus was talking to. In fact, we see other times where Jesus talks to people who were rich, who were wealthy. And you know what Jesus doesn't tell them to do? Sell all their stuff. 
that we may say, it's not fair that you're asking me to give this up. Look at all these other people. You're not asking them. Jesus would say, I know. I'm asking you. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Is there some area in your life that if Jesus came for it, perhaps you already know. Perhaps it's because Jesus has already come for it. But Jesus has already said, you know, this is, this is that thing, Brad. This is the thing. And, and I resist and I push back and I'm still holding on to it. And as the pastor says, hey, is there a thing? I know the thing. And Jesus has just got to learn to deal with that this is my thing. But this brings us to the second point. And, and this is actually kind of a hard one. It's hard for us to, to see this. It's hard for us to maybe even understand fully and completely what happens in this moment because it, it flies in the face of what we want Jesus to do. It flies in the face of, of what we want Jesus to be. See, out of love and grace and mercy for this man, we want to see, or perhaps we even expect Jesus to chase after the man. Jesus to go after him. To, Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Don't go away sad. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's see if we can figure this thing out. Don't go away yet. Don't, don't leave yet. We, we, we want to see, it's, it's okay, I love you, and because I love you, you don't worry about giving that up. We'll, we'll figure it out. You and me, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. It'll be okay. We want Jesus to make it okay for the man. I know I do, because I want Jesus to do that for me. That even as I hold on to my things, as, as I struggle to place Jesus as Lord over everything in my life, I want Jesus, when I feel sad, when I feel like walking away, to come running after me to say, it's okay, Brad. Don't, don't worry about it now. Obviously, you're not ready. And, and that's okay. It's okay. We can come back to that later. It's okay. Just let me love on you right now, and we'll, we'll deal with that as, as we want, you know, Jesus to, 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 to respond to the rich young ruler the same way he responds to the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. It's okay. I've got all the grace and all the forgiveness that you need to hold on to those things. It's going to be okay. And together, maybe, maybe we can come to an understanding of why you actually need to hold on to these things. But, but that's not what Jesus does here. See, the difficult thing that we see is that Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't chase after the man. Now, remember how we started this conversation. Jesus, out of love for this man. He loved him deeply. He loves us deeply out of love for this man. Jesus lets him walk away. Out of love for this man, Jesus doesn't meet him. He doesn't catch up to him. He doesn't run after him and say, let's talk about, I need you to understand why this is justifiable for me to ask you. 
Let me unpack for you the theology of everything that's going on so that you can maybe come to a better understanding of why I've asked. Jesus doesn't try and meet the man halfway. Jesus just leaves the man with the truth of what God requires of him. Out of love. Out of love for this man. Jesus allows him to walk away sad. And this is why it's so hard. Because we don't know anything else about this man. Did he ever come back? I don't know. Did he ever reconcile his wealth with God? I don't know. Or did he home hold so firmly onto the wealth in his life that even though he seemingly had a sincere desire to live for God, remember, he said, I've been trying to do this since I was a boy. But was this thing in his life had such a grip on him that when he, he was put in a position to choose between God and his thing, he couldn't let go of the thing. We don't know what happened. When Jesus says to the man, if you want to make me Lord, I need to be Lord over everything. Even that area. The man walked away from Jesus. All his good intentions, all his sacrifices, all the rules he kept, all the things he did, all the things he didn't do, all of these laws that he's endeavored to keep since he was a baby. The resume he could point to and say, Jesus, isn't this enough? Look at all the things. Isn't this enough? See, Jesus didn't come to die for this man's resume. He didn't come to die for all that he had done for Jesus. He came to die for his heart. He came to die for his life. He came to die so that the man didn't need to try and do all of this stuff in order to appease in an angry God. He died so that the man could say, here's my heart, here's my life. And so the rich young ruler walks away sad because he couldn't set God in the right place. But here's the thing. He could have. See, the criminal on the cross, remember, that's where we started this morning. As he makes Jesus Lord, Jesus doesn't send him away. As the criminal on the cross hangs next to Jesus, he has the exact opposite case that the rich young ruler has. See, he can't say, oh, I've kept all those things since I was young. He can't say, oh, turns out we're just being crucified, but hey, we're both innocent. He, he hangs on a cross confessing, hey, man, I am here justly. And he can't say, look at my resume. He can't say, look at all the things I did for you. In fact, his heart is probably like, Jesus, don't look at anything. Don't look at it. Don't look at me. Don't look at what I've done. Don't look at it. Just, just remember me now in just this one moment. 
But the same way that Jesus understands the rich young ruler, he understands the man on the cross. See, the criminal on the cross, as he makes Jesus Lord, Jesus doesn't send him away. He doesn't hang on the cross and go, yeah, right. Are you crazy, man? Look at where, look, you? I don't think so. As he hangs on the cross and, and the man says, Jesus, remember me as, I, as, as you go into your kingdom. It's not about a resume. It's not about all the things he did. It's not all about all this amazing life he's lived up until this point. And is this going to get me in? Jesus doesn't send him away. And he doesn't let him get away. But instead, the man hanging on the cross hears everything the rich young ruler wanted to hear. He hears everything that he wanted to hear said about, or he hears, the man hears everything the rich young ruler thought he would hear from Jesus. Jesus said, remember to keep, my, keep all the commandments. And I've done that since I was little. The rich young ruler wants to hear, well, today, when you die, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's not what he hears. But it's what the man hanging on the cross hears. This man on the cross did the one thing the rich young ruler couldn't do. He made Jesus Lord. Lord over everything. As a result, Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I tell you, you have found eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we, as your people, come together this morning with a recognition that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God, may, may we not stand or sit or be in a place that the rich young ruler, where we say, you yeah, know, I'm pretty good. God, may we be able to recognize our need for you in our lives. God, I pray that as, as, we, as we recognize the need for you and we discover the truth of who you are, God, I thank you that we each have the opportunity to make you Lord of our lives in a way that allows us to find eternity. God, not because of my resume, not because of who I am, not because of all these amazing things I've done. But God, just by making you Lord of my life, and so, God, I pray that you would help us each today to be able to make you Lord of our lives. God, if we have never made you Lord at all, God, may we take the step today to, to admit, believe, and confess and enter into relationship with you. But for those of us who are gathered here today who have made Jesus Lord of all, God, would you help us to really be able to make you Lord of all? And God, as we enter into Easter and we see the sacrifice that you made for us, may we not, like the rich young ruler, see parts of our lives as too great a sacrifice for you. God, I thank you that, that even with the rich young ruler, God, and, and as he came in the wrong place, God, and as we may come in the wrong place today, God, you didn't send him away. 
God, you were willing to meet him. You were willing to work with him. You were willing to, to allow him to grow. And so, God, I pray for each one of us gathered here today, God, that there would be no room, no sense, no place for guilt or condemnation from the enemy to be able to say, see, you haven't done that. But, God, I pray that for each one of us, even as the Holy Spirit may be speaking to us and illuminating areas in our lives, God, I pray that it wouldn't fill us with shame wouldn't fill us with guilt, but God, that it would fill us with hope. Because your word will tell us that you shine light into the darkness. And the promise that you make is that the darkness cannot overcome it. So God, I thank you that we have the promise that any darkness that exists inside of us, any places that we've kept hidden, any place in our lives that we haven't turned over to you, God, that when your light shines on it, it's not to make us feel bad. It's not to make us feel ashamed, but so that we can walk in victory, we can walk in freedom, and we can walk with you as Lord of our lives. God, I thank you for your incredible mercy and your incredible grace that lives on each one of our lives and allows us to come to you time and again and ask for forgiveness and ask for mercy and discover this fount of never-ending grace on our lives. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I've read the words in red. Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go.
of a heavenly home on high. You're preparing a place where the sorrows erased, and when I stand before you, I'll find. 